I'm so grateful for the applied blood of Jesus Christ. How do you feel this morning about that? Are you grateful for the applied blood of Jesus Christ? Can you sound a little more excited about that than that? Are you grateful for the applied blood of Jesus Christ? Now, you know what that means, right? When you say the applied blood of Jesus Christ, it's one thing to, be, to sing about and to testify about and to know about and to read about and to talk about the fact that Jesus' blood was shed. That happened. But it's an entirely different thing to talk about the applied blood, right? What does that mean for it to be applied? You tell me, what does that mean for it to be applied? That means it means something to me, right? Like it did something to me. I received it and I applied what was shed. It was shed for everyone, friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that those who would believe in him would no longer be uh, sons born of, this is a bit of a mixture of, of, of some scriptures of John, but no longer be sons born of, of, of flesh and blood of our decisions, would not be like the children that we have, but they would become children born of God by the will of God, born of the Spirit, reborn. That was done for everyone, but for those who apply the blood, those are the ones who receive the free gift of salvation that God has given. This morning, I hope that you are grateful for the blood applied. And I'm going to tell you right up front here, if you have the bulletin and you look in the back side, you see there's a hand out there that gives you a chance to follow along the sermon. If you would like to do so uh, by taking notes, and you're going to see that last year I preached a Mother's Day sermon. I was very good about those kind of things, and this year I've slipped back into my old, I don't know what you call it, non-traditional, old, curmudgeonly old, I like that word recently, so I'm applying it to myself a lot, my old... Whatever ways. I'm sorry I'm not preaching a Mother's Day message to you this morning. We're going to go to... <laughs> he said, that's okay, thank you. I'm going to, we're going to continue uh, just working right through First Thessalonians. It's the Word of God, and we, uh, I make it a practice to teach exegetically through Scripture, and we're just going to take it the next text as, as it comes. I'm supposing you know that that means in June you're not going to hear a Father's Day message either, but uh, this is what's going to happen. First Thessalonians, I hope you have your Bible open. I would like you to have you read along with me as I read. We're going to read the most important thing of the entire message this morning over the next couple of minutes here, next uh, minute or so. It's not a very long text. We're going to read verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. That's where we've, we've come to uh, in our text. And so I'd like to have you read along with me. Verse 9, chapter 4, First Thessalonians. Paul wrote these words. Now concerning brotherly love... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For the brothers, I'm sorry, I skipped a line there. You've been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've inspired a man like Paul to pen this letter to a group of believers like the Thessalonians, and thank you that you've preserved your inspired word for us, that we today, sitting here as a group of believers in this building, in Michigan, uh, in the United States, centuries later, that we can read it and we can be instructed by it. We receive it no less than the, uh, the hearers in Thessalonica did on the day they received the letter from Paul. We receive it as words that come from you, not just from a man. 
We thank you. We ask you to break it open to us. We ask you to teach us. We ask you to shape our lives, our minds, what we think according to what your word says, our hearts, what we want and yearn for according to what your word says, our wills conformed and yielded to what your will says, and our, the practice of our life then to be also conformed to what your word says. Both as individuals, so as individual people, as, as families, as, as family units, and as a church body overall. Thank you, God. We depend on your Holy Spirit to instruct us from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning we're going to start off with what I have often ended with. I've gone to the end of Thessalonians, Paul's uh, powerful two-verse statement about his prayer and what he wants. And we've been saying them as a prayer, but also as a declaration that that's where we're at. So I'm going to put them on the screen so you can read them with me. If you're visiting with us this morning, I hope this isn't too weird to you. We're going to read this together as a body because we want to, uh, we want to say it uh, for each other, to each other, and for ourselves. Receive it as it's being said to us. Say this together with me if you would. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is what God is calling you to, that you would be ready for Christ's return, that your whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept blameless until he returns, and that you'd be sanctified completely. In fact, I remind you as I set up this morning's message and where we're going to go, I remind you at the end of chapter 3, we found a little bit of a transition, and Paul prayed this powerful prayer for the Thessalonians. He said, I'm praying, and this is in chapter 3, verse 11, I'm praying this, that the God of our, and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, would direct our way to you, and then he said, this. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And I shared with you when we got to that text, I shared with you that there's a bit of a transition point and he's introducing some topics that he's going to talk about over the rest of the letter here. We just have four and five left, but he's got some, some pretty major topics he wants to address still. Now, we picked a piece up on that last week. We read the first verses from Thessalonians chapter four and the subject matter was sanctified, being sanctified. You, he, you saw he said, he, I'm praying that God would establish your hearts blameless in holiness. That's the word sanctification. Holiness before him. So last week we wrestled with or talked about the subject of sanctification. In the coming weeks, next week and the week after at least for sure, he's going to then turn his attention to the return of Christ. That's in there, right? That we would be uh, sanctified, we'd be established in holiness before God at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So we're going to treat that subject. So what's left is the first part of his prayer, which he said, I'm praying that God would ask you or enable you to increase and abound to uh, sort of... Uh, 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 that word is just escaped out of my head. It means like superbounding. But it, uh, two words of, of excess. Uh, increase and abound in love for one another. And that's what today's message is about. I've entitled the message Loving, and we're going to jump in now. Much like last week, we're going to kind of go to both ends of the text and then kind of drill down as we move uh, into the heart of what Paul really wants to talk about. Let me start here in verse 9 by pulling this phrase out. Paul says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So we're going to spend the first part of our message time just reflecting on Paul's words that we are to love one another and what about what that means about what that means now, this is probably no secret to you right so maybe it's a Mother's Day message in some sense because we're supposed to love and we talk about love on Mother's Day but it's really true for all of us it's no secret right the Bible talks about love 
That was not a secret, was it? The Bible talks about love. It talks a lot about love. It talks about love all the way through. Very clearly, the Bible is about love. When a young man or a ruler of, the, of, I don't know how young he was, I suppose, a ruler came to Jesus one day in Luke chapter 10, Luke records this, and he came and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he so often does, he reflected that question back to them, right? And said, how do you read the law? What do you think it says? What did he say? Anybody know what he said? Nobody knows what he said? He said this. The ruler said, he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might and all, all, your, all your strength and with all your mind. I got those mixed up a little bit. And your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Now, do you know what comes next? Luke chapter 10, what comes next? What's that? No, not, not that text. Who is my neighbor, he says. Because he wanted to excuse himself, right? And we have the story of the Good Samaritan. I don't have time to tell you that story this morning. would love to have done it, but uh, you'll have to go back and read Luke chapter 10. But as Jesus did in that text with that man on that day, and he said, let me expand your mind about what you think a neighbor really is, Paul is doing in this text. He says, you've been taught by God to love each other, and I'm going to tell you about those things, but I want you to see that loving one another goes beyond some of the things that you may think it does. But we're going to start with the one that we all understand and the one we all, we all get, although it can be difficult too, but it gets even more difficult. But in verse 9, he says this. He says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. In other words, he begins with some praise for the Thessalonians. He says, I know about you. I've heard about you. Timothy went and checked up on you, and he came back, and I know that you love each other. You love those that are part of your own fellowship, and that's good. No one has to write to you about that. And that's really critical, right? Because Jesus told us, I'm giving you a new command. Really wasn't new, but it, uh, he renewed a renewed command that you're to love each other. In fact, he said, this will be the test how people know that you belong to me. Right? They'll know that you're my disciple. How? Whether you have love one for another, whether you love each other. So Paul is just, he's just, he's, he's not teaching new stuff here. He's saying Jesus taught these things and he's instructed me to tell you the same thing. And I'm commending you for it. I'm commending you. No one has to write to you about these things because you have gotten it down. Now Paul uses the word Philadelphia, which is literally a brotherly love, right? So literally have love for your brothers and your sisters, of course. They go together. So you are to love each other. Church, you know this this morning, right? You're to love each other. You're to care about each other. You are to show concern about each other. And that the early disciples grabbed the hold of what Jesus taught is clear. Because we don't go very far in the book of Acts. We, in chapter 2, the church is established. The church is born. And believers are added. And we read in chapter 2, verses about 42 to 47, we immediately read that they did all kinds of things that demonstrated love for each other. They got together all the time. They shared with each other. They ate food together. If someone had a need, someone else had something, they gave it to them. They, they loaned it or they gave it to them outright. And they, sometimes they even sold things and took the money and said, here, somebody might have a need of something. Go share it with people. They demonstrated that they understood what Jesus meant when he said, love each other. That's how people on the outside are going to know that you're followers of me. Love each other. And Paul says, I'm commending you. I'm commending you for that. But we're going to see he's going to talk a little bit. He's going to sort of widen the circle as it, as it is. So we should, of course, love those people that you go to church with. 
Now, that doesn't come without difficulties, does it? Does it? It does not come without difficulties. There's difficulties that are part of that, right? Because we're not all the same. In fact, sometimes it's really hard for those that are close to you and you know what they're like and you see their behaviors and, and you spend a lot of time with them. Sometimes it's harder to love them, right? To continue to be reminded that I love these people. I care about these people. I give of myself to these people. But I might suggest that we have more work to do. Paul widens the circle out and he says, oh, let me back up a bit. I, I forgot to do something I should do. You saw that I, I, let me just make a quick statement about this to tuck back in your brain. You saw that I, I highlighted a couple of those words, a different color. I want you to just pay attention. Not, uh, the phrase in English, maybe, but the Greek words are echo, which means to hold or to have something, kraya, which means to have a need of or to be in need of, and then it says ooh, because you have no need. So you have no need. You hold no need. Just stick that back in your head, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. I'll tell you why I say that in a little bit. But, but Paul widens the circle a bit as he says, and indeed, this is what you're doing. Now notice what he says here. To all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is an area. It's like, uh, I had to say calling it a state because it's not quite the same as, as you think of states here in the United States. But for lack of a better word, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a geographical area. And it's, it's a broader area. There's several towns. Philippi is in Macedonia. Thessalonica is in Macedonia. Berea is in Macedonia. There's several towns that cover what is northern Greece today that are the, that's Macedonia, the area of Macedonia. And Paul says, by the way, I know that you're not just loving each other, that the people you actually see week in and week out and, and are part of a local body together with, but you're loving people all the way throughout the whole extended area. And it reminds us that our love for our brothers and sisters goes beyond that too. It's why we, for us, you know, our world has shrunk. So we're not, I mean, it hasn't literally shrunk, guys. Don't, don't, but our, the, uh, the reach in the world has shrunk, right? So what used to be, if you were in Macedonia and you had, I mean, it took some time for things to travel. But now, guess what? We find out very quickly that there's a whole bunch of ugly stuff going on in Manipur, India. And we care about our brothers and sisters, Right? Because they're, they're getting persecuted, and, and we love them, and we do whatever we can. We found out there's a hurricane, in, uh, not a hurricane, an, an earthquake in Turkey. And we say, oh, we have brothers and sisters there. They're part of our family, and we want to love on them. Or there's a war in Ukraine. There's all kinds of things, all kinds of places where we say, our hearts are burdened, and we, we love our brothers and sisters, and we give to them. Now, Paul, you notice, or you remember way back in the very beginning, and it probably didn't stick out to you, but it's fine. But in the, very, in the beginning of the letter, he said to them, he said, you have become examples to these believers, the Thessalonians. You've become examples to the people in Macedonia and Achaia, which is the next ge geography, the next area uh, next to that yet. He said, you become examples to them. And when he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, he has in chapter 8, he talks about giving. Uh, he talks about giving generously. And he actually points to these believers and says, pay attention to those people in Macedonia, and, and the Thessalonians especially, for they gave. They gave out of what they had. In fact, they gave sacrificially, he says. They gave more than they had, more than they could have or should have been able to give. But it's because their love overflowed for their brothers and sisters. I... I I tend to talk, and I talk fast, and I talk a lot, and sometimes it's good to put a space in there. Because I think one of the greatest things that has shifts that has happened in our culture, and when I say our culture, I don't mean like 
what many of us would consider the worldly culture out there. I mean, our, like, like, maybe not all of you fit this bill, but I come from Amish background, Mennonite, Anabaptist culture. We have moved away from some of this with our community around us and the world around us. We have become very okay with having lots of things to our own name. We've become very wealthy and affluent. Now, this is not a sermon about giving stuff away, and it's not a sermon at all about feeling guilty for the things that we have. I remind us, however, that if the mark of being Jesus' disciple is loving each other, that happens here, and that does happen in this church body. I'm grateful for people that care for each other. It happens worldwide, and we know those things here. I just want us to not lose sight of the fact that we live in a place that's like the wealthiest place in the entire world, and we compare ourselves all the time to other people, perhaps, who have a lot more than us, which you could find people like that. I could take you lots of places in the U.S., but across the globe, that people don't have nearly what we have. And in that context, we are very, very wealthy. And again, I'm not, this is not a, I'm helping us see that we show concern for people. And some of the ways that we do that is by giving of what we have so that people, people's needs are met. It's not just money. It's not a money thing, by the way. Because as Paul identified, I should have just read those verses. Because Paul was very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, listen. Now, these are my words, not his. He says, listen. Don't think this is just about money. Because he said they gave their hearts first. They gave their hearts to the Lord and to each other. And out of that, everything else came. So I'm not telling you you have to give more. I'm telling you you have to love more. And God will take care of the rest. We're a very giving church, so I don't want that to come across as a rebuke in any way. But we have to keep moving because as Paul widens the circle, he's going to take it to a place that many of us probably uh, don't always think about when we think about loving each other. We, it's pretty comfortable to keep, us, to keep it within the circle of those who believe because they're like us. They think like us. And they probably, hopefully, also kind of like us a little bit too. Right? And they can repay us, and they should. They feel like they, they should repay us when we have need. But Paul goes on to say at the very end of the text you read today, I think he saved it for the end there because he's, he's trying to see, help them see where he's going to get to. At the very end of the text, he says, I want you also to walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's an interesting phrase, to walk properly before outsiders. But keep in mind that all of this is hanging on that first phrase that I read. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So out of that, you've been taught by God to love one another. God himself impressed upon you to love each other. And I want you to see, this is Paul saying this, I want you to see that that applies here in this room. And that applies more broadly to those who also follow the same faith you do, who are also followers of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. But it also applies so that you know to walk properly among those who are on the outside. Now, who is that? Who is on the outside? Who's, who's still a, who, who, who is Paul referring to when he says the outsiders? It's kind of a rude term, actually. But he's exactly right. Non it's non-believers. It's those who are not yet believing and following Jesus Christ. They are those without. They're without salvation. They're without hope. They're without peace. They're without a place of eternal joy that's being prepared for them. Walk properly 
out to those to the outside. And again, Paul is not saying, I, I have a brand new thing for you. You've never heard this before because Jesus himself said these words, right? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, I say to you who hear, who listen, who want to pay attention to this, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So let me just make it clear for you that, yes, I really do have the outrageous belief that the Bible teaches that even those people who are unkind to us, we should love. Even those people who hurt us, we should love. Even those people who are very different from us and think very differently and act very differently and don't think a whole lot of us, we should love. That's what Jesus is trying to say, I think. And he says that, actually, literally, love your enemies. He also says, do good to them. He also says, bless them. He also says, pray for them. You see, the circle keeps getting wider, and we can't just say, well, I'm in my little group of people that I go to church with every week, and when we don't get along with each other, we decide to go somewhere else because we can't get along with each other. We, we disagree about something. But the ones that are left, those are people that are just like me, and so it's really easy for me to just stick with them. I love them. It's not that big a deal, and no, nobody's, no, there's nothing, there's nobody's feathers are getting ruffled, and I can share with them, and they can share with me. And by the way, if I give something to them, I'm going to expect that they're probably going to be able to give something back to me because they're also just like me. And we realize that that's really not the picture that Jesus painted, and it's not the picture that Paul is painting to the Thessalonians this morning. If we are to be loving, it's got to go far beyond. It's got to start here, but it's got to go far beyond these walls. I mean, this isn't that hard to make this, like, so directly applicable, right? Because there is a whole lot of people that live right, like, there that are very, very different from all of us. And by the way, if you give to them, they're probably not going to be able to repay you. And you'll probably have to give again sometime. But look what Paul says. He began by saying, I don't have to write to you. No one has to write to you. No one has to tell you anything about loving each other. But let me go back to this verse here. I highlighted another phrase here, the last phrase, be dependent on no one, which is an interesting phrase because in the English it means, at least most of us read it that way and we say, well, we're not dependent on anyone. That's, that's good. But literally the words that are there in the text are two of the same words he used up above. So up above, in, when he says you have no need to be taught by anyone, he says, echo kraya u. And here he says, when you walk properly before outsiders, then you echo kraya uh, hemais. I think it's the word. It's a different word for no, but it's the same two words. You have no need. You hold no need. You, ha you do not have a reason for anyone. What he's implying is now you no longer have any reason for anyone to write to you about love at all. Because you've loved those here, and you're loving those brothers and sisters there, but you're also loving those on the outside. Now, you know, now I no longer would have no more reason to address you. He's saying, I want your love to abound more and more so that it would extend even to them on the outside, even to those without, and then you will have no more need to be talked to about love. I find, hear me church please, I find in our current culture and environment that is so polar, so polarizing, we hate the other political party, we hate anyone who doesn't look and dress and think like us, we're pushed to such, 
I find that these kinds of words are easy. Listen, church, they're easy to assent, give assent to mentally up here and say, yep, that's what the Bible teaches. I understand that. They're difficult to let them work their way down here and truly love those who are on the outside. I want to move to the second half, of the second part of the message. I don't know if they're in halves. I don't, I don't, I have no idea. But the second part of the message. In verse 10, Paul says, we urge you to do this more and more. Abound. He's used that phrase when he prayed. He said, I pray that your love would increase and abound more and more. When he talked about what um, he wants them to be in holiness and sanctification, he asked that, they, that it would abound more and more. They would do it more and more. And here he says, again, I want you to love. I want you to do these things more and more. And listen, just like last week, Last week, we talked about sanctify, being sanctified, and we could have talked about lots of areas of holiness. I said this last week. We could have talked about lots of areas of holiness, but what Paul did is he said, I'm going to tell you one thing that I think you need to know in this area, and we talked about sexual immorality. This week, in the same way, there are lots of places we could talk about love, aren't there? There's lots of areas, lots of facets of life that we could say, well, we could grow in love, or we need to know how to love, or this is not what love is, or this is what love is, or lots of places. But Paul does the same thing. He's going to go back, and he's going to say, let me just bring one thing to your mind. And I have to believe, just like I said last week with the sexual immorality, I have to believe that Paul did so because he thought that's the most important one for them to know. And today I have to say the same thing. I think it's the most important one that he felt that they should know. If you're going to love people, let me talk about a few things. And Paul uses three phrases in verse 11. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Three phrases in verse 11. And every one of these phrases I find very interesting because every one of the phrases, I think there's some flexibility in how you interpret them. Depending on what translation you're reading, in fact, they come out differently. And depending on how you put them together, you come to a different conclusion. So the first phrase is this phrase here. He said, you should do this more and more. You should strive to live quietly. I want to point out just at the very beginning here that he gives us a little bit of a paradox. Because the word strive means what? To struggle, to, 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 to reach for, to try to get to no matter what cost. And the word live quietly means to be at peace or to be quiet. So you should strive to be quiet. You should struggle to be at peace. You see, that's a bit of a paradox, right? I don't have time this morning, but there are some beautiful paradoxes in Scripture that you should pay attention to. Out of death comes life. Beautiful paragraph, paradoxes of death working in us so life can also be put. Anyway, I told you I don't have time, so I can't go there. Strive to live quietly. You should strive. Now, when you hear a phrase like that, I don't know what you think about. I don't know where your head goes. But there's certainly a sense that, that, that we want to sort of duck our heads. And as good Anabaptists, again, you may not all be Anabaptists, but many, most of us are. As good Anabaptists, we're very used to this idea, by the way. We, we've become a little too used to this idea of being the quiet in the land. That we've traded off and said, we don't want to make a stir. We don't want to, we don't want to upset people. We want to just sort of duck our heads and we want to just sort of, sort of live. Let's, let us live at peace and we're fine with that. So this phrase feels good to us. We should strive to live quietly. But you know the word there, live quietly, there's actually a really strong implication in about half the times when it's in the New Testament and it's translated, it actually is talking about a very specific thing. It's talking about words that come out of our mouth that are meddlesome, that are bothersome, that are indicting, that are words that you shouldn't say. For example, when the religious leaders came to Jesus, 
because it was on a Sabbath day, and there was a man with dropsy among them, and they were watching him like a hawk because they wanted to get him in trouble. And Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, looked at them and said, what do you think? Is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath or not? And then it says, Luke records this, I think. It says, and then they were quiet. They shut their mouth. They held their peace. Or when Peter came back from visiting Cornelius and he's brought before the church leaders and they weren't too happy that he had, had a meal with Gentiles and, and interacted with them and he began to tell them what all Jesus had done in his life and how he had, had this vision on the rooftop and he went to go see Cornelius and as he spoke to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit fell on them and, and it says when they heard that, they shut their mouth. They held their peace. They became quiet and they said, surely then God has also brought uh, uh, salvation to the Gentiles. So you see the phrase that's here, the word that's here, often comes with an implication of things that we're saying that we ought not to be saying. Meddlesome talk. Or perhaps we could just go to Paul's own letter, 2 Thessalonians, we're in Thessalonians here, 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, I'm going to flip over there, because he actually uses the same phrase here again, in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, and that's that word, they're busy bodies. So actually, it turns out, I think Paul is addressing something pretty specific. Strive to live quietly means a little more than just be the quiet in the land. It means be careful with the things you're saying. Now we can look at the next phrase because the next phrase is going to fit right in this. He says, you should strive to live quietly. You should mind your own affairs. And again, we find a phrase that can literally be translated, do your own work. Do your own work. Don't have someone else do it for you. Do your own work. But as you're well aware of in the English when I say, mind your own business, what does that mean? Keep your nose out of it, right? You see, the phrases overlap, don't they? Somewhere, I didn't take time to look this up, but somewhere back in the, the historical pages of, of language, which I normally do because I love doing this kind of stuff, but in the etymology, etym I, I can't think of that word. In the history of those words, somewhere there's an overlap in those phrases why they have to do the same thing. But, but keep your hand to your own plow. Do your own job. So the phrases can mean both. Mind your own affairs and mind your own affairs. And it could mean two different things. The third phrase, by the way, is constructed just like the second phrase. has two of the same words in it. It's a, it's a parallel phrase. He says, he says uh, pay attention to your own stuff and work on your own stuff. Here it's translated in the ESV as work with your hands. Again, you could take that phrase literally just as it's written. And it's okay to do that, by the way, to say that he is exhorting them to, to do something with their hands. And a lot of translations read that. Work with your own hands. I would tell you I think it's been misapplied, and even by people in our culture, to say that, well, that means you have to have some kind of manual labor job of some kind. I don't think that's what he means at all. Because the same phrase comes in. It's structured the exact same way. If I say, mind your own business, and you know exactly what I mean when I say that, I can also say, hey... Stay in your own lane. And you know what that means, right? Work with your hands. What Paul is trying to say is, be concerned about the things that you actually have control over. That's your stuff. Don't worry about the things you don't have control over out there. That's not your stuff. So, when you take these three phrases together, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, 
and work with your hands, and especially with the final phrase, which I've already talked about, but the final phrase that so that we're not dependent on anyone, we could interpret Paul's teaching to the Thessalonians here by saying we are to be good, industrious, hardworking people so that we can become economically independent and people, we're not, we're not sucking off the government's, you know, siphon of, of money. And that, that, that feels like good stuff for us. And it feels like good stuff for us as, as Mennonite Anabaptist people. We work hard. People, we're not relying on other people. We, we take care of ourselves. And you could, you could interpret those phrases that way. By the way, Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. He said, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So there's some parallels there. So we could interpret it that way. We could say that's what Paul is after. He's saying, listen, you give yourself to work, tuck down, don't create issues, do a good job, be honest, be, be, uh, be of good reputation, and, and, and work hard. Take care of yourself. That way people aren't, you're not depending on other people's charity. On the flip side, you could take every one of those phrases and you could say what Paul is really teaching is that we are not to be nosy, meddlesome people that are trying to control everybody else. That we're not to use our mouths to indict or criticize or to control or to, uh, to sort of work in the way between people or to cause stir up trouble. Again, we could go to scripture. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I'm hearing this, that besides there's people that are learning to be idlers, they're going from house to house, not only idlers, but they're gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And again, there's parallel phrases to what I just read to you in that one. We could say, that's what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, listen, if you're going to love people, let it start with your mouth. Watch what you say. Don't worry about things that don't matter to you. Don't talk about people behind their backs. Don't be unkind to people to their face. Love them. Be concerned about yourself more than what everyone else is doing. You know, I think probably there's good advice there, right? If we would spend half as much time being concerned about what we are not getting right before the Lord as what everyone else is not getting right before the Lord, I think we'd be much better off. I'd like to propose to you this morning that, well... <laughs> This is no secret. I'd like to propose to you that God is a genius, that the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. I'd like to propose to you that this is not an either-or kind of situation where you can say, well, you should interpret it this way or maybe you should interpret it that way. I'd like to propose to you that this is a both-and situation because I think in the end, we find out that those who aren't busy doing their work that they should be doing, keeping, their, keeping themselves occupied, that are idle, they're the ones who are sticking their nose in other people's business. They're the ones who are saying things they shouldn't say. Can I, be, can I be blunt with us this morning? And vice versa, those people who are doing what they're supposed to be doing with honesty and sincerity and giving themselves to work and doing everything they can as good as they can with as much, with as much uh, 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 good conscience as they can, you find that those people also tend to be the ones that aren't sticking their nose where they don't belong. They're not trying to control other things. They're not, trying to, they're, not, they're not inserting themselves in situations and saying things they ought not to say. So they really kind of go hand in hand, don't they? We see that they're both true. That both of them are ways to love people. Both of them, well, both of them bring us to a place where we are loving people. It's almost as if each of us is given something to do by God. And if we were to pay attention to that and give ourselves to that and not worry so much about what everyone else is doing, that we would then fulfill what God wants. And we would then be loving each other and helping each other and pulling in the same direction and ready for Christ's return. 
And when I say it's almost like that, I mean it actually is like that. Because Jesus said exactly those words. In Mark chapter 13, as he's preparing them for the end times and return of Christ, he says this. I'm just going to put the verses up here. Mark 13, 34. He says, it's like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now, who's the man and who are the servants? Let's make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. Is it us? Are we going on a journey? Are we the ones that are going away and leaving other people in charge? No. Jesus is actually the man. Jesus is the one going on a journey. He leaves home and he puts his servants in charge. Who are the servants? That's me. That's you. That's those of us who have confessed that we want to follow Christ and will die to ourselves in order to do so. He's put his servants in charge. And look at the next line. The next line says, each with his work. And out of that, I believe Paul is instructing the Thessalonians, listen, you don't need me to write to you about loving each other, but please can you hear, love each other more and more, love the brothers and sisters out there. In fact, even love those on the outside still. And one of the best ways you can do that is for you to be committed to your own work, the things God has called you to do. Don't be so concerned about what everyone else is not doing right according to you, or whatever it might be. Don't, 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 don't be nosy. Don't, don't sit around. Now, we're going to touch a little bit on this, but don't sit around and wait for Jesus to return and be like, well, he's coming back soon, so I'm just going to do nothing. But engage yourself. Give yourself to the work. All those phrases apply on all those levels, on both sides of the, of the coin, so to speak. And stay awake. This is what prepares us for the coming of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is leading us to, by the way. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be, Lord willing, in, in the rest of chapter 4, the first part of chapter 5, prepared for Jesus Christ. Sanctified, loving, and next week, ready. Ready for Jesus. Pray with me, if you would. God, thank you so much for your text this morning. Thank you for your words. Thank you that you have spoken to us. I pray that your word might have its effect. And as I do many Sundays, maybe not all Sundays, but I, I, I intend it or I mean it every Sunday, I pray, God, that those words that came from me and they were not correct and they ought not to be there, I pray that you would strike them from my memory or make me aware of it in some way so I can correct myself. Those words that came from you, that came from your word, that were, that were led of, of you, that, that, that were you instructing us, I pray that those words would be come to the forefront and be, be pressed into our memory. God, we give you praise. We give you glory. Thank you. Thank you that in many ways uh, the demonstration of what Paul is instructing them has come to us through Jesus Christ himself. That as we pray to become more Christ-like, we are praying to become more sanctified and more loving. Loving to each other. Loving to the body of Christ globally and loving to those who are still on the outside. Help us, God, to correctly apply the word that you've given to us, that we can be an honor and a glory unto you. It's not because of us. It's not that so we would look good, but it's so that you might be recognized as the giver of all good things, that those that are on the outside might know truly that we have chosen to follow Jesus and we are prepared and ready to share something with, with others around us through love because we love them. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.